You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio and David's Pick. And we've got a an exceptional guest on today that uh, I think everybody's going to, particularly if you were around in the 60s, and uh, we're going to talk about the capture of the Pueblo. But before we get started with that, we always start with a moment of silence. And this is um, anyway. We're gonna we're gonna be talking about. Okay, well, we're gonna start off the show before we introduce our guests, like we always do, with uh, a. Uh, moment of silence we call it if you go to our website and look up the first thing you'll see is the J. Roy Ritchie Memorial and uh, if you have if you're a veteran or you know a veteran or that is in need of prayer just send their name to us and we'll be glad to take it from there and uh, we just do one moment of uh, silence and think about the veterans that have given their the ultimate sacrifice or the veterans that are suffering from their tours of duty, their deployments, and so forth. So we'll stop right now and do that, and then we'll come back with our very special guest, Mr. Fred Boyles. So we'll be back in just a moment. Thank you. And we go from thinking about our brothers and sisters that have served into something that always got me past that last half mile. And we'll be with our guest, Fred Boyles, in just one moment after we listen to... to have that cadence call to get us up and going. And I remember, Fred, I don't know if you were ever in this position in the Navy, but uh, did you all do cadence calls? No, I, I, I sure don't remember that. <laughs> okay, well, we did as we were marching from point A to point B and uh, all points in between, we'd get into the cadence call and our, our platoon sergeant, our platoon leader would lead us in a cadence call and that always gave you a smile on their face and uh, the inspiration to go that next half mile. So, anyway, we've got retired Captain Fred Boyles today, and Fred has had a very interesting career and uh, got into, and this is what we're going to wind up primarily talking about, is the capture of the Pueblo. And I remember it well, and I uh, had distorted some of the... uh, or my memory, because of age, had distorted some of the facts, but uh, we'll get into that. Uh, Fred, you want to just give a very brief, quick history of what you've done and uh, 
all the places you've been and what the what you were in the Navy. And we're, I'm going to ask uh, uh, a question in a minute. Uh, let's see. Um, I'm going to ask the audience if they know what stevedores are. And uh, you were in charge of a bunch of them. And I guess in some ways they're being used more today than ever. But anyway, tell us just a little bit about your background. Sure. Um, so I I was a naval reservist and served for uh, 29 years uh, um, as a reservist. Um, my my dad was an army reservist, and um, so I I I guess I kind of looked up to that and and understand or understood the whole concept of being a reservist, and uh, uh, it was. I always just tell folks that, you know, some people play golf and some people go fishing, and I did the reserves, and um, uh, so I always enjoyed it. Every couple of years, I had a new assignment and would go somewhere else and learn something new, and and it always seemed like just about the time I had learned that job, it was time to go on to something else, and uh, uh, so... Um, Is it, uh, and, and, how many times were you mobilized? Uh, twice. Wow. So I was mobilized uh, for Operation Iraqi Freedom and, and spent uh, 10 months in Kuwait where we did stevedore work or simply loading and unloading ships uh, for not only the Army but also uh, uh, working with other branches and international partners as well. So uh, that was a, a great assignment. Uh uh, uh, even though I dreaded it, I didn't want to go. You know, I was not happy about going like everybody else who gets mobilized. It ended up being a wonderful experience. And uh, the, the best part, of course, is the people you work with. And um, it was just an honor to to uh, to work with them and, and, and all the other folks uh, that we got to know. But uh, my last job was... Uh, um, I had already retired from my civilian job, and it was—I knew it was my last uh, assignment before retirement from the Navy. And I was assigned to uh, Naval U.S. Naval Forces Korea, which was a reserve unit that had—I think it was eight or nine detachments all over the country. But I was at the headquarters unit at Point Wanimi, California, and uh, uh, so. As soon as they found out I was retired, they said, hey, we got a job for you. And then I spent roughly two years, a little less than two years, in Seoul, Korea, at the headquarters of Naval Forces Korea. Wow. Uh, was it because of your specialty that you were called up generally? or? Uh, so I was in the Navy. We have uh, uh, what, are, what I would call line line officers and staff officers so i was a staff officer i was a supply corps officer which is um uh a logistics person and you're you were a logistics manager and so that was my background i'm I'm not sure it was uh the guy who had had the job before me he had been a line officer so they they just needed a um a captain and i was it so um um, but it was a it was a wonderful wonderful uh, two years there, and I learned so much, not only about the whole Korea thing, but 
all of the international issues uh, uh, in the Far East, and uh, it was just it was just a, a wonderful assignment and getting to learn about their the culture of the place, and uh, it, it was really special. And how did you like some of the Korean food? Hmm. Okay. <laughs> uh, I I I. I came to appreciate it. It took a while, and uh, but um, yeah, I uh, I still. In fact, I told my wife the other day when all this COVID stuff gets, uh, we get that behind us. There's a Korean barbecue uh, near us where I live, and I'm like, we got to go to the Korean barbecue. We haven't been there, and uh, which is, uh, it's not like Southern barbecue. It's <laughs> it's. It's very different, but it's good. And some of their soups that you had something looking back at you, maybe? Um, yes, yes. I, <laughs> I'll tell this. This is a terrible story. I hope it's all right to tell it. But Certainly. One, one guy told me, because I was asking him, there was a place, one of my favorite places to go eat was called, literally in Korean, Grandma's Chicken. And they cooked chicken and noodles together and it was real bland but you had to get there at like five in the evening because the place was packed and folks would drink beer and eat this uh this wonderful chicken and noodles uh and it'd take you hours to eat it it was so much but i remember asking a korean friend i said i need to find this place and i can't remember where it is and he said oh he he showed me how to get there and all but he said that's the place where they serve dog. And uh, sure enough, right next door to Grandma's Kitchen or Grandma's Chicken was a place that served dog. Hmm. And uh, uh, that, so I had my picture next to the sign because people won't believe you that. Uh, um, and and it's, it is, it, it's something you don't see a lot. Uh, it, and it's sort of going out of favor because it was most, older Koreans who would eat dog. And uh, anyway, <laughs> I shouldn't have told that story. No, no, no. That's, uh, we'll probably get some comments on it, but that's okay. That's, that's, uh, we like the truth. And, uh, and I think, uh, as my son learned when he was stationed in Korea, that, uh, you know, it's, as the old saying, different strokes for different folks. And uh, That's right. You know, different culture and... Uh, they they might not like the fact that uh, we eat steaks too, you know. So, mm-hmm. but anyway, so how did you? I want to get really into the pueblo as as quickly as we can because I find it very interesting. I remember the capture, and uh, but like I said, you know, I because of age probably, but. Uh, you know, I, I had forgotten a lot of the details. What what brought you into being a historian, and and uh, and you work with uh, interested in prisoners of war? And I remember some of the uh, the pictures that Korea let out of, or they opened up to the public uh, of our n- naval folks that had been serving on the Pueblo when it was captured and um, you know they they made as big a a deal out of it as they could correct yes um, absolutely so um, as a as a reservist um, 
uh, I had a full-time job, and, and I had a long career, uh, over 30 years, with the National Park Service, uh, which is the keeper of America's uh, 400 and some units of the National Park System, which includes the Grand Canyon and Yellowstone, but it also includes um, places such as the Statue of Liberty and uh, here in Georgia, I was at Cumberland Island National Seashore, uh, and uh, but my longest assignment was at a place called Andersonville National Historic Site. And what a lot of people don't realize when they 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 might know a little bit about Andersonville, that's the big Civil War prisoner of war camp. It is, and that's true. Uh, but it is also the national memorial for all POWs in American history. Um, and that was codified in federal law in 1970. So the, the, the law that created Andersonville National Historic Site said that this place will be the memorial for all POWs in our history. And so towards that end, um, in 1998, we opened and dedicated the National Prisoner of War Museum at Andersonville. So uh, Georgians and, frankly, all Americans who uh, get the chance should see this place, especially if you're interested in, in uh, this kind of stuff, because it's, uh, it's really uh, it's a world-class museum, and, uh, and it's something very, very special. So it was there where I was first exposed to the Pueblo. Uh, well, no, that, that's, uh, I was, like you, I was remembered the Pueblo from way back when. I was, I guess, in the eighth and ninth grade at the time, and I was just starting to uh, care about uh, current events and uh, issues, international issues like that. So, um, and like many people, my immediate response is, even as a kid was to say, man, we got to go in there and get that shit back. And, uh, of course, uh, it's, it's a very complicated story. And, and of course, that's what makes it so interesting. Truth is always more interesting than the history. Uh, but it was while I was at, at, at Naval Forces Korea, uh, and I was talking to my boss, and who the Admiral uh, Bill Byrne, who's still in the Navy, and he's at the Joint Staff now. And I was talking with him about the Pueblo, and he said, well, you know, he said, I wish you would prepare something to brief our staff about it. Because he said, I think people know a little bit about it, but they don't know kind of the whole story. And so uh, I did that and made that presentation actually several times now. Uh, and have always uh, enjoyed sharing it because it always gets a lot of discussion. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, okay, this was in 1960... What? 1968. 68, okay. And uh, let's see. I, well, I'm obviously older than you. I was. I had graduated from high school and was in college when, when at all, and trying to uh, stay in college so uh, I wouldn't be caught up in the draft. They still mm -hmm. had the draft, and then they came out with the lottery, and I was number 12, but I stayed in school. Um, but, you know, it, it was a national concern, and I, I wonder today 
what it would be like with our modern technology, the GPS systems that we have, the satellites that we have. Um, it was sort of a, a he said, she said situation, as I recall. And she being North Korea and he being the United States, and we certainly denied being in in uh, territorial waters and said we were in international waters. And uh, I think, that is, is my terminology correct? They called it a marine... Um, oh, now I, it slipped my mind. Uh, um, well, meaning it was a marine event that a mariner event that uh, that uh, they would capture our ship. And, uh, you know, had we had the news ability that we have now, I wonder where we would be with it today. Well, um, actually, it was not that long ago. Um, it was in the first few months of President George W. Bush's administration that we had a... Uh, a plane with had, had a somewhat similar mission that was uh, uh, flying very close to China and was captured by the Chinese. And they were only held for a few days and, and nothing like the, the Pueblo experience. But um, uh, same kind of mission, a listening uh, surveillance type mission. And uh, um, uh, they were captured and held for again a very brief time, but uh, and and they returned our plane. Uh, now, what did they did they download all the material and all that? I, I don't know, but uh, so it it, it uh, that sort of thing it, it didn't happen that long ago. What that would have been two thousand one in the spring of two thousand one. It was foreshadowed by nine eleven a few months later. But um, uh, so the Pueblo was, I don't know if you may remember, but we, that the Soviets, because uh, this is all about, the, the Pueblo is heavily about the Cold War, and it's all about the Soviets and their relationship with North Korea. And we had uh, Soviet fishing trawlers that would fly our coast to surveil us, and um, we knew about this, uh, and were they fishing or were they listening? Well, they were probably, they probably throw a line in the water every now and then to act like they were fishing, but they were, they were listening. Uh, so we came up with this idea uh, through the National Security Administration, the NSA, to uh, take three Army ships, old World War II Army ships, and to convert them into uh, surveillance ships. And they were called the, uh, the USS Banner, Pueblo, and then the Palm Beach. So uh, their cover uh, was that they were environmental research vessels. And they literally had uh, two, on their crew, they had two oceanographers that were assigned, civilian oceanographers that were assigned to the ship uh, for the purpose of holding the cover of being um, environmental research and oceanography. 
Hmm. But these old cargo ships were converted over up in Bremerton, Washington. Uh, they went through some trials, and then uh, uh, off they went to go listen off the coast. Uh, and the Pueblo, which was A-G-E-R number two, uh, was first given a mission to surveil off of North Korea. Uh, and it's, it's, it's their first mission where everything goes bad. Hmm. How, how big a ship were those? They're, they're not very big. Uh, 177 feet long, uh, roughly 32 feet wide. Uh, they had two, two diesel engines. But it's important to note, too, they, they had been designed for the Army to be used in what's called intra-theater. Um, they were not good ocean-going vessels, uh, and they, they were slow. Uh, I want to say their top speed was a little, little under 13 knots, which is not very fast. And, uh, and they had... Uh, the only armament that they had were two fifty, uh, other than small arms. They had two fifty caliber machine guns. And they, uh, they had a crew of how many? Uh, let's see. I'm trying to remember. I think the crew is uh, six officers and seventy enlisted, plus the two civilian oceanographers. Hmm. So. For that size ship, a fairly, not large, but fairly good-sized crew. Yes, and and although you had, you know, people to take care of the engines and people to do the navigation and people to cook the food, the real mission-oriented people uh, were the, uh, uh, and this is where there were several of these folks more than normal, uh, were what we would call CTs, uh, cryptological technicians. These are the guys who would listen and record information, and and that was so, you know, an aircraft carrier's mission is to launch aircraft and fly planes. Well, uh, this ship's mission was to listen uh, and to try to gain as much information information as possible. It's all about intelligence gathering. You know, I had a roommate that was a linguist. Uh, I've never met anybody like this, and uh, he had served in Nam and uh, was a SEAL, as a matter of fact, but his mission was to go, he would be dropped off by a sub, and uh, he would go inland into China, and this guy was incredible. He could... He didn't speak Spanish, but I sat at a table with him, and a group of people speaking Spanish were at another table, and within a few minutes, he could tell you what they were saying. And well, not, he couldn't speak well, it, but he could he could understand it. And that's uh, he that's why they dropped him off uh, on the coast of China, and uh, he would go inland and set up a listening post and could pick up all the different, I don't know how many different dialects that China has, but um, he could pick it up and, uh, you know, would meet the sub back two weeks later or a week later or whatever it happened to be. And uh, he was just incredible. But we, I guess, 
we do it to them and they do it to us. It's, it's all uh, all part of the, the, the you got to gather intel. Yep, it's all part of the game. So anyway, the Pueblos uh, off the coast of Korea gathering information, and then? So uh, Jane, the, the attack takes place uh, 53 years ago, January 23, uh, 22, and 23, and um, it all really goes bad on January the 23rd, 1968. Uh, they're attacked by, um, uh, uh, let's see, it's roughly five, high-speed, small uh, uh, North Korean warships. Uh, two jets go after them. Uh, there's a little bit of a, a disagreement on how long the attack takes, um, but they're literally sprayed with machine gun fire constantly. And because of the mission, they, they, are, they had been ordered to cover up their uh, two fifty caliber machine guns with a tarp, mm-hmm. and the tarps were covered with frozen water, oh. and so uh, uh, with ice, and it would have taken um, um, axes to literally get to their guns uh, to get rid of all the ice, and every time they try, they would try to go out to get to the guns they were sprayed with machine gun fire so uh and the whole time they turned and and went east they were in what's called the east sea and um uh, they were going at uh 13 knots and which is slow and they these these uh uh warships were literally circling them firing upon them Hmm. um and it was clear that uh, if they didn't surrender, they were all going to be killed. Now, uh, several several of the sailors were injured, and one was killed, uh, a fellow named Dwayne Hodges. Uh, so he was killed almost immediately in that attack. Wow. Uh, and that's when the commander, uh, Commander P, uh, Lloyd Booker, makes the decision to surrender the ship. Now, were they in contact with... Washington or uh, uh, well, no, they're they're in contact with um, uh, their their I guess uh, 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 superior command, and they are appealing for help, and they are promised that help is on the way. And uh, this is pre Goldwater Nichols, so the Navy uh, says. We'll get the Air Force to respond because they're closer. And the Air Force says, well, it's a Navy mission. They should respond, and they're back in Japan. And so there's not a coordinated uh, command center to to deal with the issue. And so uh, it's too late, and before you know it, the ship is taken, and uh, they start and they take them to the port of Wonsan, which is on the east coast of North Korea. So, obviously the Koreans boarded the ship, and how did, 
only I'd come up with something like this, but how did they, were, did the North Koreans have someone that spoke English? Um, I could, that I don't know. Um, um, I, or did, um, the, did the ship have, have to go someone back that's... to look at that, but, um, I'm guessing that they, that they did, and that's, um, I'd have to go look that up to be sure. But they, but the main thing was they got them to Wonsan, and by then it was uh, pretty much too late to do anything to respond um, uh, in terms of quickly getting them out of there. Right. And with the crew that they had, did the did the uh, Koreans come aboard the Pueblo and? Uh, Take total command, or did did they just order the Booker and uh, and the rest of the crew to to do what they told them to? They they just took them and took them straight to Wonsan, which was not very far. So mm-hmm. they they took them into the the port of Wonsan, and um, and then they had them. So, what was the treatment like of our prisoners of war? Um. It, it it was horrible. Um, uh, so it immediately starts off being very very bad. Fred, and, could I, Fred, could I back up one second? And sure. We weren't at war with Korea, so can you really classify them as prisoners of war? Ah, it's a good question. I'm glad you asked that because um, were we at war with North Korea? Well. Uh, the answer technically is yes, um, because we're still at war with North Korea. Uh, in 1953, and when the armistice was signed in Panmunjom, it was literally just a ceasefire. And that uh, document that the party signed said that within a year they'll come up with a peace treaty. Well, we're still waiting. Uh, so we literally are... Uh, uh, and in a war, technically, with North Korea, and were at that time as well. So, and by the way, this later becomes quite an issue because uh, years later, when the Prisoner of War Medal was authorized in the 1980s, uh, um, the Navy said these guys weren't POWs, and we're going to deny them uh, receiving the POW Medal. Uh, so that's some of the controversy afterwards, but um, eventually they were, uh, and it was because uh, Congress interdicted and said, you will uh, give the Prisoner of War Medal uh, to, the, um, to the Pueblo survivors. But, they, yes, their treatment was terrible. They, um, the first thing they did was extract... Um, coerced confessions from uh, mainly the officers but from the crew as well they um, and it and the the reason the worst was for commander Booker the commanding officer uh, they made him sign a forced confession that they were uh, war criminals that they were in inter- that they were that they had entered into North Korean waters territorial waters um, and uh, this confession, uh, is interesting to read because 
and, and by the way, I should back up. Uh, Commander Booker was told that if he did not do this, that they would begin one by one killing all of his crew members. Mm. And so uh, he takes, you know, he, he has, he's put in this horrible situation where he either lets his crew die um, or he signs, he writes and signs a confession, which of course is against the code of conduct. Um, uh, that all military folks at that time and still today uh, uh, sign off on. Had North Korea signed the Geneva Convention? Um, no. Okay. And, so. and they they always insisted uh, that um, they were not. They didn't even have to be held to that. Hmm. So um, they it, that was always. Uh, um, a bone of contention between the, the, the crew as POWs and, and their captors. But, uh, Fred, um, Fred, I'm going to have yeah. to stop you. We've got to take a quick break here. And uh, I want to mention, and I think you're going to make a comment as well. Uh, you know, we work very closely with Colonel Rick White, retired. He's the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And uh, he wanted me to announce that... Uh, the inductees for 2020 will, the ceremony had to be canceled, or not canceled, but just postponed, and it will be at Newtown Park in um, Johns Creek, Georgia, on April the 3rd. And did you have something else to add to that, uh, Fred? Well, the, the Georgia Military uh, Hall of Fame is just a very special special uh, institution to me uh, one of the uh, one of the persons who's honored in there who's deceased was uh, was a park ranger that I worked with and uh, I didn't know at the time but he he was uh, he was like a mentor and a teacher to me but uh, he is a chosen reservoir uh, survivor as a marine uh, he was um, uh, I think he was like 19 or, or 20 years old when he was up at the Chosun Reservoir during the Korean War, and um, uh, it doesn't it doesn't get more brutal than that. But he was just a, a great friend and a great mentor to me as a young guy many many years ago. And I never at the time I never appreciated what he had done in the Marine Corps, but um, uh, but he he was uh, very special to me and and gives to me the um, Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame uh, 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 kind of a special mark in my life because of my relationship with Ted Wolf. That's great. Um, let's get back to the Pueblo and uh, the business at hand. Okay, so the POWs were treated worse than bad. Yeah. And, uh, was this but I, I want to go back to one thing, and I, sure. I, I talked about the, the, the confession statement, um, and, and, but the, it's fascinating because in the confession statement, it, it says stuff like, it's quite long, by the way, it's almost like an essay, but he says in there that he, was, uh, uh, he had been trained uh, in the Navy by, by, are you ready for this? Um, Fleet General Barney Google. <laughs> now, if 
if you know anything about uh, the you know that period of time, Barney Google was a character in the Snuffy Smith cartoon, and um, he he talks about the lackeys of Bowery Street of the Bowery Street billionaires, and um, uh, uh, he he's. Uh, and he kind of sums it up at the end, and he says that we have been rotating on the fickle finger of fate, which has, by the way, if you remember that. Oh, yeah, that the, was, yeah, that was in the show, um, in the TV show. Rowan and Martin right. laugh in. Right. Yeah. And, uh, um, and he said, and uh, fickle finger of fate for such a long language months, uh, we give our word to the great speckled bird that we will heretofore, in all sincerity, cleanse ourselves of the rottenness uh, that, and we solemnly await our return to our loved ones so that the fickle finger can be replaced by the rosy fingers of dawn and salvation. So help me, Hannah. So that's his confession, or, or pieces of his confession. So, um, of course, that was he was able to convince the North Koreans that that would be an appropriate thing to write uh, as a confession, but it's also a signal that he's resisting. Right. I, I remember that came out in, was it after they were released, or did it come out while they were still captive? Well, it, it would have been, um, um, uh, our intel folks would have known about that. Uh, they were getting that because... That was all the kind of stuff that the North Koreans were waving in our face, so to speak. Mm-hmm. We got the confession by Google. Yes. <laughs> uh, what uh, our response was basically an international response, wasn't it? Well, what's one of the to me fascinating things about it is, is that uh, um, Lyndon Johnson. President Lyndon Johnson gets his morning presidential brief uh, the next day, and his first thing is, "What's the Pueblo? What is you know? What is this? Oh well, it's a surveillance ship. Well, I didn't know anything about this. Why are we doing this?" And it's it catches uh, folks by surprise, and uh, uh, but uh, McNamara and. Um, and Johnson respond with uh, basically a show of force. Uh, it's not an attack or anything, but they put a, a carrier strike group out into the uh, off North Korea. Uh, we mobilize, um, gosh, it's something like uh, uh, 14,000 reservists, and uh, um, and and then of course the first big thing is to say. Where's South Korea in all of this? Because, you know, they are, when it comes to this stuff, they are our most important um, ally. And what folks don't realize is the context of the period, because um, just a few days, like a week or two prior to this, North Korea had sent over 30 commandos down into South Korea for the purpose of killing the president of South Korea. Uh, And they got, if you think about the White House, our White House, 
these commandos got on the lawn of the White House. They almost made it. They got so close to actually killing President Park. I remember um, that. And by the way, four U.S. soldiers died in that raid, as <laughs> well as a number of, of South Koreans. And this really shook up uh, President Park. Um, and he was very close to Lyndon Johnson. And uh, But you also need to remember that at the time, this is not only at the height of Vietnam, uh, the Tet Offensive begins at the end of January, so roughly the same time. Uh, we are uh, completely immersed in the Vietnam War. Uh, and... Um, you know, Johnson in his own memoirs say that, that the capture of the of the Pueblo is one of the darkest moments of his presidency, if not the darkest moment, because um, he just hated that, you know, the situation and what had happened. Um, and, of course, the other thing, Johnson decides in March not to run for a second term. And so all of these things sort of play all out uh, in in the the context of what's going on at the time. Very interesting. Uh, like today, we have our fake news or whatever you want to call it, but how much of uh, media, I don't want to, I hate to use the word cover-up, but how much were we really not told until after the fact and, the, and our Navy personnel had been released so um there is a huge reaction uh and a lot of it too has to do with the families of the pueblo uh they're led by rose booker who is the wife of commander pete booker uh but they start a campaign and most of them tend uh, at the time were in uh san diego because technically that's where the ship came out of and so they were pushing hard uh, there was there was significant media attention uh, to it, and um, you know the public was outraged and angry about it. Uh, and the uh, the administration began almost immediately. It, it happens just very quickly to negotiate with the North Koreans uh, for the return of the ship at the DMZ at what's called the JSA, the Joint Security Area. Um, you know, those blue buildings that we all see pictures of where the two places come together. And so Blue those John meetings or something go like on that. for months. And uh, uh, Johnson sends a fellow named Nicholas Katzenbach. Yeah, who was, uh, um, he was in the State Department. He's the lead negotiator. He had actually been a POW in World War II. Hmm. And, um, uh, and what the North Koreans want is that they want uh, the United States to uh, admit to going inside their waters to apologize and to promise to never do it again. And the big sticking point was every, everything pointed to the fact, and, and it's I don't think it's you can refute it, uh, that they never entered into the uh, Korean North Korean uh, uh, territorial waters. So um, it's it's months months later when 
um, they come up with the idea, and it's sort of simple, but they say, well, let's agree to it. Let's just agree to the to that we enter, apologize, agree to it, and say we won't ever do it again. But as soon as we get our crew back, say, that's not true. We just did it to get our crew back. Where, uh, Secretary of State was Dean Rusk at the time. What yes, role did mm-hmm. what role did he play particularly? Not, I, I'm not sure that he uh, uh, he wasn't. I mean, he would have been very much involved. Um, but uh, and and of course, he's he's the guy that uh, most people say attribute him to being the one who gave us the death. Uh, established the 38th parallel as the DMZ. Uh, he had been an army officer in Japan at the end of World War II when it was time to divvy up um, the Korean Peninsula. So uh, a lot of people in South Korea know who Dean Rusk is hmm. uh, for that reason. But anyway, um, um, we do uh, sign the agreement uh, at Pan Moon John. And the crew is released on um, uh, just a few days before Christmas in 1968, actually the 23rd of December. And they walk across the, uh, the uh, famous bridge at the DMZ. Interesting. Uh, and you told me something else interesting about where the, um, where the Pueblo is now and what they're doing with it. Right. It's a, uh, it is a, because uh, this is, this is the classic David and Goliath story. Uh, and, and that's the way they present it. They still have the ship. Uh, and, um, uh, it is a place that North Koreans go to visit and they celebrate their, uh, their sort of victory, so to speak, over, uh, the, um, the United States and how they were able to make us back down. Um, what uh, and what's also important to this is, um, and we haven't really mentioned this, is that uh, by most accounts, uh, this is the the greatest um, loss of of intelligence classified material uh, in the Cold War. Um, and it was mainly the encryption machines that they were able to get. And, of course, if North Korea got this stuff, the Soviet Union got it. And what we also only learned later is about the time the, uh, the Pueblo is captured is when John Walker uh, starts selling secrets to the Soviets. And what is he selling them? He's selling them encryption information. Uh, John oh, Walker yeah. was a United States Navy sailor uh, who was um, who was a spy for the for the Russians. Um, anyway, um, it was a horrible loss of intel intelligence uh, to the uh, to the Soviet bloc. Um, and but yes, the 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 Pueblo is still it's on a river in Pyongyang and uh, uh, still a trophy um, to the North Korean people. Hmm. Do you think that will continue for ad infinitum? I really don't know. Um, 
And I know there's a lot of people who still believe we should uh, work to get it back at some point. Um, I don't. Uh, I, it's speculation to say that we can or it will happen. Oh, let me. I want to go back to the encryption machine and the encryption, the information that they were able. Uh, under rules of engagement, are why didn't Booker? Why why wasn't a lot of the ship destroyed before they turned it over to yes, Korea? Yeah, um, and they they did. They they worked as hard as they could uh, to uh, to get rid of stuff, uh, and um, but they just couldn't do it fast enough. Uh, one of the things, and we haven't gotten into it, but the board of inquiry that looked into the incident afterwards, uh, which, by the way, ended up recommending that Booker be court-martialed for his role in that. Um, And that uh, they did not uh, have a good plan to destroy that classified material. And by the way, we're we're a lot better at that today than... (laughs) And we were in 1968 at getting rid of stuff like that in case that were to happen. Uh, but um, they just couldn't burn the stuff fast enough. Uh, and uh, so uh, there was paper, there was machines, there were manuals. Uh, in other words, the manuals were how to repair everything. Well, those manuals were, it was like a, how to put everything together and take it apart. So, I mean, it, it was just like a, um, everything they could have ever wanted. Plus, they were the, the there was the intel from the crew themselves that they could use to back up the information that they found uh, on the ship. So it sounds to me like it was a uh, naval glitch more so than the commander glitch. You know, I... <laughs> In the military, you have procedures for opening the bathroom door almost, and yes. yet they didn't have uh, a plan to destroy. I mean, effectively destroy, I should say. Well, well they did have a plan. It it was obviously not good enough, um, and it didn't do the job as it should, uh, and. Um, you know, one of the things that when you have uh, paper, um, one of the key things you got to do is when you're done with the paper, you need to destroy the paper. Well, they hadn't done as good a job as they should have at getting rid of the messages and other things that had been printed out. So, um, again, they, uh, the court of inquiry uh, found that they... Uh, just had not done a good job of preparing for this for that situation, but also in um, uh, carrying out that part of the the mission. And, but the other side of it was they had hardly any time to do that. Hmm. Fred, I, I want to stop uh, again and just mention uh, the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame and. Uh, Colonel Rick White, uh, I was fortunate enough to have lunch with him yesterday. What an, what a gentleman and what a great director of something that's so important. And we encourage several things. We encourage 
everybody that lives in Atlanta, or if you're traveling to Atlanta, go to, it's right across the street from the state capitol, the big gold dome, you can't miss that, and it's in the Floyd building, and it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity to talk to your kids and to your grandkids about our heroes that have come from Georgia, and in many cases, given the ultimate sacrifice. And also want to mention the uh, the fact that their induction ceremony will be April the third at Johns Creek at the uh, Johns Creek Newtown Park, and that's where the healing wall is at Johns Creek, it's, which is a replica of the North Viet or North Vietnamese of the Vietnam War veterans in Washington D.C. So. It's uh, Johns Creek in that area, and all of Georgia is becoming very well known for what they do for veterans. And uh, we want to encourage everybody, everybody to do that. And uh, I think this show is about the Pueblo, and the facts that you're telling us, uh, Fred, are just absolutely incredible. And let me ask one provocative question i guess oh i got two one i think i told you about um that one of the hardballs that i throw to all of the people that we interview the veterans that we interview can you uh name one veteran that you know that can tell just one story mm-hmm. oh i don't think so <laughs> once you get them started they keep on going and i bet some of the crew of the pueblo have got some incredible stories to tell but uh, you know, was was there ever the uh, the potential of sinking the Pueblo? I mean, as the crew was there and everybody going overboard or anything like that to scuttle the ship. Yeah, right, right. Well, you, you know, us us, us army people we've got one term. You scuttle, I, you know, sink, scuttle, whatever. Well, one of the keys was they never reached. Uh, the the uh, uh, the deep deep water. Hmm. So uh, they uh, had they gone further out, they would have been at a hundred fathoms, and the ship would have been gone forever. But they never got that far. So even some of the things they were able to throw over the side were retrieved. Uh, well, we we think they we we're pretty sure they were retrieved um, because uh, uh, they just weren't in that deep of water. So, so, had they sunk the ship, it could have been brought back. Hmm. So, with the, with the technology today, is most of what they were doing then done by satellite today? Boy, I'm. Um, Probably not. I don't think I can answer that okay. um, just because I don't know. Um, but uh, um, obviously, we have a lot more capability today uh, than uh, than back then. But but the the other part of it is too is always remember who you're surveilling, and that's the North Koreans. Which um, it is without a doubt. It was then. It is today, uh, without a doubt, the most secretive uh, uh, society on Earth. That's uh, an interesting observation, and I guess a lot of us uh, 
we would have thought China or Russia would have been, but uh, uh, <laughs> North Korea has a quick solution to most anything called a bullet. And uh, if you don't agree with them, I guess uh, they become an even more secret society, don't they? Well, um, not only that, but think of it this way. If you were, if you speak out about the regime, um, then, uh, and you're punished, not only are you punished, but your immediate family and your extended family are sent to prison. Wow. Now, if I do something wrong in our society or pretty much any other country in the world, I would be punished. But the idea that my whole family and my extended family would be punished? Yeah. That's serious stuff. And that's the way they, that's the way they are. And that's why tens of thousands of people are locked away in these prison camps today in North Korea. Fred, I'm, have to apologize. We've run out of time. Uh, will you come back and be on again with us? Sure, I'd love to. Great. Well, we, uh, we certainly appreciate you being on today, and uh, we will talk to you soon. Thank you, sir. Thank you for Thanks. your service, by the way, too. You bet. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.